Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Harry and Meghan reunite with Oprah Winfrey. King Charles' royal visit sparks highs and lows and an update on Meghan and podcasting. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. Prince Harry and Meghan have been in Santa Barbara doing good for charity alongside A-list names including Oprah and Ellen. Kevin Costner hosted a festival where Maroon 5 played on his polo field. This was for Charity 1805, which is a local organisation. It provides mental health support for first responders, so firefighters, police, ambulance crews, people who have to deal with really difficult experiences in their day-to-day lives. So a great cause and also a new opportunity for Harry and Meghan to be seen in places where some of the most successful names in America are seen. And they were star guests invited up on stage to hand out an award to Kevin Costner. And they also went to meet members of the crowd. They kind of, you know, came down off stage and were shaking hands and greeting people, chatting. And I think this is a good thing for them because, and I have said this many times before... This is the cure for the perception that the Sussexes were overexposed or spent too much time complaining relative to their vast wealth. So obviously, they always get criticism. But one of the big kind of attack lines against Harry and Meghan is this idea that, you know, they're millionaires. They live in a not so much a castle, but a palatial home in Montecito, $14 million. They've got it great. They have all this land. They have all this opportunity. They have the limelight. But all they do is moan, moan, moan. So they need to stay relevant, but at a time when a lot of people feel like they've heard enough from Harry and Meghan and what they actually want is for Harry and Meghan to stop talking and just go and do something else. So this is back to the royal playbook. They don't have to say a huge amount. They don't have to criticise anything. They don't have to talk about Harry's family. They don't have to talk about the royal rift. All they have to do is turn up for a good cause. It shows they care They lead by example and they do things that people cannot possibly criticise them for. Nobody can criticise a person who supports an unambiguously good cause. We need firefighters and ambulance crews. We need them to do things that are traumatising to them. Trying to heal people who are dying or risking their lives running into burning buildings. You know, these things are needed by society, but are also traumatising to the people doing them. And there's one aspect of this that also caught my eye, which I think is really interesting. This is a very similar cause to one of Prince William's own major campaigns. Um, William was an air ambulance pilot himself many years ago, and he saw some harrowing stuff. He, he, there's an example that he's given in the past, in, which involved a child, and he found it very, very difficult because he was a father at the time, just become a father And so he kind of knows what they're going through. And for years now, he's been working to try to basically shine a spotlight on the plight of first responders. So from that perspective, it's really fascinating to see Harry and Meghan pop up pursuing or advocating for the same cause. And it reminded me of a bit in Harry's book, Spare, where he talks about just how jealous and territorial William was. 
um, in relation to just this kind of thing, just this kind of professional overlap. So William, according to Harry, flew off the handle when Harry wanted to do conservation work in Africa because he felt Africa was his thing. Harry said they nearly came to blows about it. And speaking for probably about 90% of readers of the book, one of their childhood friends once asked William, why can't you both do it? Uh, So at this point, William apparently started like ranting about how rhinos and elephants were his thing. And later also acknowledged being jealous that Harry had got invited to a, a trek to the North Pole with this veterans charity called Walking with the Wounded instead of him. Um, and Harry suggests William described himself as having stood aside to let his brother take centre stage. So all this, that was back in 2015. So that was years ago, way long, way before Meghan. And um, so from that rivalry and that jealousy, you have a situation where William last week was at the 10 House Fire Station in New York. So that's in America, kind of on Harry and Meghan's patch, talking about first responder mental health. And you go from that to Harry doing the same thing, surrounded by two of the biggest celebrities in America, right down the road from the house in Montecito. And William's visit wasn't just on Harry and Meghan's turf. The police shut down the road outside the tent house so he could do a full walkabout in the streets of New York. He met adoring fans, there were huge crowds, and it was just a few months after Meghan and Harry were smuggled into Ziegfeld Ballroom through a Hertz car rental office. And after that awards gala, Harry and Meghan said they were chased through New York by the paparazzi, while the police were seemingly unable to stop this pursuit from happening. People might remember that. It was a massive, massive story at the time. They they talked about like a two-hour car chase. I think the NYPD and the New York mayor kind of toned that down a little, little bit and tried to kind of dampen expectations and say, actually, maybe, you know, it wasn't chase a high-speed chase for a full two hours. But clearly, it was hugely upsetting for Harry, who has his whole history with the paparazzi. So, you know, with that in mind, it's very significant that William was able to shut down this whole block of New York and thereby not have to deal with the paparazzi. And on the same day as that visit to the Ten House, William had a summit for his Earthshot Prize Climate Change Awards, which featured two guests poached straight out of Meghan and Harry's Rolodex. So that's ex-New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and the celebrity chef Jose Andres. Both had previously worked with the Sussexes. Ardern was on Meghan's Forces for Change Vogue cover. This was back in 2019. It caused a big furore. There was a huge amount of debate about it at the time. Meghan didn't put herself on the cover. She was accused of kind of trying to upstage Kate at the time. It probably all sounds very weird. It was all very weird, but that was 2019. It was a weird time. And um, then also, she, Jacinda Ardern was in Harry and Meghan's lesser known Netflix film, Live to Lead. She actually distanced herself from the film, saying that her bits were recorded before Harry and Meghan were involved. But she's gone from that to being a trustee of William's Earthshot Prize. So he's signed her up. Jose Andres is the founder of World Central Kitchen. So this is a really good cause. They kind of build disaster relief kitchens in countries around the world. Um, And he was a major partner for Harry and Meghan's Archerwell Foundation in its first two years. And he's described them as being friends. So more than just professional partners, but actually friends. But he chaired a panel discussion at Prince William's Climate Change Summit. So last week, it was William's turn to rub it in Harry and Meghan's faces that he could shut down a New York block to allow him 
to meet his fans face to face and rally their professional contacts to promote his cause. And this week, it's almost like Harry and Meghan have fired back and just got straight back out there, straight back on the royal horse, promoting a cause William has championed for years. Only they did it surrounded by Oprah and Ellen and US celebrity royalty. And obviously, it was the big royal story of the weekend. It made in all the papers and on all the websites. And what it all reminded me of, apart obviously from that Africa story in Harry's book, was an era of royal reporting in the first few months of 2018 when Meghan had just arrived on the scene. Now, obviously, she'd been dating Harry for a couple of years, but having got engaged in November 2017, she was carrying out her first royal jobs, and the country was gripped by what the papers at the time were calling Meghan mania. Now, every visit, the streets were lined with fans desperate to see her, and in that context, I was sent up to Cardiff to cover Harry and Meghan's arrival there. They went to Cardiff Castle and they did some great royal jobs, all of that kind of thing, and I was fully expecting it to make the front page. Until, that is, a tip came in that William had shaved all his hair off and had a buzz cut and was about to appear at a different job on the other side of the country debuting this new look. And sure enough, up he popped, freshly shaven and full of beans. Now, to some, this may seem completely trivial. And do you know what? In some ways, it is completely trivial. It's just a haircut after all. But British people go nuts for royal news. And at the end of the day, that story about William's haircut kicked Harry and Meghan off the front pages, even as they had their long-awaited moment in the spotlight. And there were other diary clashes around that time, signs of one-upmanship, that kind of thing. And it almost feels like now we're going back to that era It's almost like there was a Cold War period in royal reporting where tensions bubbled below the surface, then they bubbled over, and for years we had the hot war defined by Oprah interviews and memoirs and Netflix documentaries, and now that subsided, there are just these few little under-the-surface hints we may be back to Cold War rivalries between the couples. And it does partly offer some support for an element of Harry's argument in Spare – I actually, for what it's worth, do not buy Harry's argument that royal jealousy was the reason for the collapse in the relationship between the brothers. It seems clear to me that Harry and Meghan, they did make their staff feel mistreated. You know, obviously the word bullying has been used. Harry and Meghan have denied it. Whatever you think about that specific word, clearly the staff felt mistreated by them and they are being sincere. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who knows? It's very difficult without going through the actual evidence with a fine tooth comb, which isn't possible because it's all been kept secret. But needless to say, those complaints for me and the fact that William took the side of the palace staff and blamed Meghan, which then sparked Harry's anger, which in turn led to leaks to the media criticising Meghan, that was all what caused the relationship to collapse, to go nuclear and just disintegrate, basically. Um, But I do think Harry is right that there was jealousy and rivalry there. Like, Harry blames jealousy for the leaks. He says that the leaks happened because people were jealous of Meghan and therefore wanted to tear them down. That's the bit that I don't quite buy, that the jealousy was the motivation for the leaks. Um, But, you know, jealousy existed, clearly. Rivalry existed, clearly. And that's kind of embarrassing for the royals and for the monarchy, particularly because some of that jealousy was actually really petty compared to the institution and its role in British life. You know, you're talking here about the institution that delivers Britain, it's head of state. Like it's, royals exist in this strange Venn diagram between politics and celebrity. It has to kind of reject both because it has to be neutral, so it can't be political. 
and it has to be above celebrity because we have so many of them and royalty has to be doing something more. So it is kind of formed of an amalgamation of politics and celebrity that simultaneously embraces the cultures of both while rejecting both and having to be something different. But clearly, it's a very important institution in British life. And some of this rivalry, some of this competitiveness was very, very petty. So the million dollar question is, how do you solve that for future generations? How do you stop George, Charlotte and Louis' generation falling victim to the same rivalries? And I will let you think of your solutions and you can put them on a postcard and send them to Buckingham Palace. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, King Charles gets the adoration he has always longed for, but with controversy too. Ah. The comfort of your favourite seat is now your comfy car-selling command centre, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. King Charles and Queen Camilla have been in France conducting their second state visit since Queen Elizabeth II passed away in September and for the king this focused on one of his strongest subjects that's climate change and the need for international cooperation was at the top of his agenda and after decades spent campaigning on this subject, he really did get a hero's welcome in Paris. Um, He was the first British royal to address the French Parliament from the Chamber of the Senate, and he got a standing ovation, which actually went on for quite a long time. Um, He spoke in French, so I'm sure that went down really well. I'm sure there have been many UK politicians who have turned up on French soil and just spoken English in their English accents and not really made any effort at all to kind of show a willingness to do for French people what French politicians obviously do for English people when they come to Britain. Um, The king said, just as we stand together against military aggression, he's talking about Ukraine there, so must we strive together to protect the world from our most existential challenge of all, that of global warming, climate change and the catastrophic destruction of nature. So a standing ovation for that. And it all reminded me of the days when Charles was reportedly jealous that the crowds were more interested in Princess Diana than him. You may remember he at one point even joked about this and said incredibly insensitively uh, what he really needed was two wives, one to walk down one side of the street meeting the public and one to walk down the other because everybody just wanted to see his wife and wasn't as interested in him. But 
that feels like a very long time ago now. He's waited a very long time to have his moment, but it does seem that his moment has finally come and the attention and the adoration is being delivered on a global stage as well as in Britain. And that Senate speech came a day after he was treated to a very glamorous banquet at the Palace of Versailles. So this was in a really spectacular room called the Hall of Mirrors and the guest list was just as spectacular. It included the French actress Charlotte Gainsbourg who arrived in a thunderstorm and it honestly just looked like she was walking through the set of a fashion shoot so whereas you or I would probably have kind of like dived out of the car run through the kind of swirling winds and tried to get inside as soon as possible Charlotte Gainsbourg just kind of sauntered through and the wind blew her dress around as though she was posing for the cameras and the pictures just really looked like something you might find in a glossy magazine that this visit was not without its controversies, just as climate change was the big item on the agenda, it was also the backdrop for the criticism. Charles flew into Paris by private jet, despite the fact that he could have got the train, which might sound strange if you're American. Why would you get the train from Britain into France when there's a body of water in between the two countries? But there is actually the Eurostar, which goes underneath the channel. Um, and up again into France. Um, So it's a really cheap way to travel. I actually just this weekend booked my parents for my dad's 80th birthday, booked them onto a Eurostar holiday in France um, for a cost of £200. It's really, really cheap. Um, And it contributes just four kilograms of carbon to make the journey to Paris You said Charles, obviously, he's talked a big game throughout his whole career and as a royal, and he's often had this thrown at him that, you know, why do you fly around in planes? Why do you charter jets to go and talk about climate around the world? And his answer has often been, well, the day that they invent an electric plane, I'll stop doing it, but it's the only means I have of getting around. Well, that was not the case on this occasion. He had the Eurostar. And it was only as recently as the spring that Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, travelled to Paris on a political visit by Eurostar. So Charles instead chartered a government jet which created almost a 100 times as much carbon in the atmosphere, even though this was actually one of the most environmentally friendly jets on the market. It's called the Baby Voyager. It's not a huge plane and it burns um, sustainable aviation fuel. Newsweek asked a consultancy called IBA to crunch the numbers for us and they looked in detail not only at the specific type of plane but also its age and they calculated a best estimate that the whole flight, one way for all passengers, would have produced about 7.35 tonnes of carbon which is just shy of half of America's total annual carbon emissions per person. So the average American produces about 14.44 tonnes of carbon a year Charles and his team burned half that with a single flight like lasting just more than an hour. When you break it down per person, obviously it has to be converted into kilograms in order to match the Eurostar's estimate per passenger. So it's that four kilograms I mentioned. That's four kilograms per passenger on the Eurostar. Uh, we estimated, IBA estimated on our behalf, that Charles would probably have had around 20 people on the plane. And that broke down as 92 times the carbon emissions that he would have had per passenger on the Eurostar. And then, as if that wasn't all bad enough, Charles was supposed to get the train from Paris to Bordeaux for the second leg of his visit. And um, despite that, he switched, we're told, for security reasons, and he flew from Paris to Bordeaux as well, which, uh, you know, planes domestically in France, actually under the rules, 
domestic flights of under two and a half hours are seriously frowned upon in France. And that was what this journey was. It was under two and a half hours. So there was a big backlash in the French media. This is clearly a very timely message on the importance of fighting climate change, but that message was unfortunately not backed up by actions. So I spoke to a former UK government minister, Norman Baker, who, for those who are regular uh, listeners to the podcast, he's been a past guest on the Royal Report, and he told Newsweek that the king needs to get his house in order. And on that note, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, Meghan Markle appears to be abandoning her Archetypes podcast branding. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Megan has abandoned a copyright application for the name of her podcast. This is Archetypes. It debuted in August last year and it ran into, I think, about November or December. And according to documents from the US Patent and Trademark Office seen by Newsweek, she is no longer pursuing the copyright for that name. So in essence, Megan applied to trademark the name. She ran into some problems, but the application was still live. Now she's withdrawn it. And this comes after the collapse of the whole Spotify deal. So that happened earlier this year. Um, You know, it was a big, big, big deal signed in, or at least publicly, we knew it was signed in December 2020. So this is the first year that they spent in America. It was after the Netflix deal, and it was the sign that they were on the up. And then following problems after Harry's memoir in January, it became the sign that they were on the down again. And a a Spotify executive, Bill Simmons, described them as grifters, as I've spoken about before on this show. So, of course, there was talk in the aftermath of Spotify falling apart that Megan might simply jump ship to another platform. She might take archetypes to Amazon. I think that was the option put forward mainly because that's where Obama went after he left Spotify. Either way, though, it doesn't look like Megan will return to archetypes. And in all honesty, I'm not hugely surprised. I actually never thought she would. And the reason for that is because she was... I don't actually think she was that into the format in the end. By the end of the season that did air, she kind of abandoned it. The idea of the show to begin with was that each week she would tackle a different label that was holding women back. So, for example, you've got the trope of the diva, diva, the uh, label of the ambitious women, and so on. And she had big star guests like Serena Williams. But the last two episodes of the show departed from that formula. And then she also parted company with Rebecca Sananez, who produced the show. So it's not impossible... We'll at some stage see Megan return to the world of podcasting, but I think if that does happen, it will be a different concept and different branding, and it will kind of be a whole new show. So for what it's worth, I always actually thought that Harry and Megan should be less scripted. Archetypes was a scripted show. It was a number of episodes. There were interviews that Megan did with big-name celebrities. I mentioned Serena Williams. There were other, other big stars as well. 
But so those interviews were perhaps less scripted, but she did these kind of like, you know, read out scripted intro and exits and things like that. So it like it had a formula. It wasn't just her and Harry sat in front of a microphone chewing the fats, which is kind of what I think they should have done, because I think that is partly what audiences want from celebrity podcasts like a celebrity podcast is a bit different to a true crime podcast you go into that because you have an interest in true crime whereas a celebrity podcast you go into that because you want access to the celebrity and so that is probably what they should have focused on providing was access to her and and harry and their true authentic selves and i think that is really the important bit and i think we need to see more of funny harry you know people love harry when he's funny when he's lighthearted when he doesn't take himself too seriously when he's making jokes when he's laughing when he's connecting with people and if they do stick with podcasting or in fact you know if they do do something else factual you know which has them in it that's what i want to see basically i think people got a bit fed up with harry and megan because they were seeing too much of serious harry Uh, Serious Harry kind of does think that he knows better and is right. And in fairness, like most people do, like most people think they know better. And if you're going to have your big moment, you know, on the silver screen, then you're going to think that what you've got to do is go and give all of your real opinions, even if what you think is that you want to put the world to rights, or in fact, especially if that's what you think. But the public do seem to warm much more to Funny Harry. And I think Funny Harry in an unscripted context where he's not taking himself too seriously and not dwelling on the past could actually be a catalyst for Americans falling back in love with the Sussexes. And that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.